Welcome to this special Columbus Day episode of the Learning Curve podcast. I'm Mary Connaughton of Pioneer Institute, and I'm guest hosting for Kara and Gerard, who will be back on the regularly scheduled show released on Wednesday. Today is Columbus Day, which marks the anniversary of Christopher Columbus discovering the New World in 1492. Until recent decades, it was a national holiday that most Americans celebrated, but it wasn't controversial. These days, though, Columbus is among the most contentious and hotly debated figures in world's history as people examine and understand the complexity of his full legacy of exploration, discovery, and of course, conquest. For example, a couple of years ago in Boston, a stone statue of Columbus right next to the Italian section of the city was actually decapitated by vandals. There's no question people have very strong views about Columbus. At Pioneer Institute, we believe in looking unflinchingly at history, especially when it comes to educating school children. That's why we're providing a special podcast on the topic of Columbus and his legacy. In support of a vibrant and robust public discussion grounded in reason and facts, we're so pleased to host perhaps the country's most preeminent author and biographer of Columbus, and other noted explorers, Lawrence Burgreen. Lawrence Burgreen is a prize-winning biographer, historian, and chronicler of exploration. Among his books are biographies of Christopher Columbus, Marco Polo, Ferdinand Magellan, Giacomo Casanova, Louis Armstrong, Al Capone, and Irving Berlin, which have been translated into 25 languages worldwide. Burgreen's book, Columbus, The Four Voyages, was a New York Times bestseller, selected for Book of the Month Club, the History Book Club, and the Military Book Club, and was a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. He has written for many national publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Esquire, Newsweek, and the Chicago Tribune. Burgreen taught at the New School of Social Research and served as assistant to the president of the Museum of Television and Radio in New York. He is a member of PEN American Center and is a trustee of the New York Society Library. He graduated from Harvard in 1972 and lives in New York. Lawrence, welcome to the special Columbus Day episode of the Learning Curve podcast. This Columbus Day commemorates the 530th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's history-changing and ever-controversial discovery of the New World in 1492. Your 2011 book on Columbus is a tour de force and was the first major biography of him since Samuel Eliot Morrison's 1942 book, Admiral of the Ocean Sea. Would you share with our listeners what people should know about the life, career, myths around this courageous, brilliant, volatile, ruthless, and complicated explorer and navigator? Well, I think you broadly hinted at the fact that there's a lot to him. He's a controversial figure. There's a lot to say, but at the risk of drastically oversimplifying, as you know, Columbus's accomplishments are hotly contested today, highly controversial. Even today in the New York Post, there's an editorial saying that uh, the governor of New York is battling with somebody else who's running for governor about whether to eliminate Columbus Day or not. Anyway, we all know him as the explorer who was the first person to discover America, except 
He didn't discover America. He never even knew it existed. He sailed to some island in the Caribbean in search of what he called India, which would be our idea of China or the Far East. And any people he sought, he found there, and he did find some people, especially uh, the Taino and some others, he considered some form of Chinese. And he even brought along a translator with him who was prepared to speak Chinese in the event that he got there. So he was really confused. Using how could this almost tragically or comically confused person be considered so important? Now, nobody had actually, from Europe, had sailed across the Atlantic before that we knew about successfully, which he did in only 33 days, and then sailed back and then did it three more times within the space of 12 years. At the end of that time, Columbus was a broken person. However, the course of history had changed for better and for worse. So yes, he's very controversial, but also he's too important and too influential to ignore because of the fact that he broke through this barrier that had existed before. Some of the consequences were tragic. Some of them were beneficial. They're still with us, perhaps now more than ever, and he would have been astounded about the magnitude and controversy surrounding his reputation because there are hundreds, maybe thousands of places named for Columbus. In New York City alone, where I live, there's Columbus Circle and Columbus Avenue and goes on and on and on, not to mention Columbia University and so forth. And every city or town, it seems, has its name in honor of Columbus and many of them. And as I said, he never even knew it existed because he never stopped here. He sailed south of the southernmost tip of Florida and was looking for something else. He didn't know the Pacific Ocean existed. Now, you think, how can he be so challenged? But this was the conventional wisdom in Europe at that time. In fact, the most up-to-date thinking. So he was actually a person very much of his time and his thoughts about the people whom he encountered, which went from at first rather benign to then cruel and exploitative, were conventional thinking of his time. He was not an exceptionally cruel or uh, dehumanizing person. He was reflecting attitudes from his native Genoa. Oh, that brings up another subject. Where was Columbus born? Where was he from? Well, there are many what they call counterfactual records about Columbus. I used mainly documents that were church records and census and things like that. So we know really exactly who he was, his family, that he was born in Genoa in 1451 while he sailed for Spain. Keep in mind that Italy was not united then. It was a collection of city-states, Genoa being one of the most influential, and he grew up as a very successful commercial pilot, you would call it merchant marine today. He had a vision, which other people shared, of being able to sail across the water, across the ocean, to this China, which we call the New World, but for Columbus was really the Old World because China had existed long before and was in many ways technologically and philosophically and scientifically ahead of the West at that point. So why do we even honor him or remember him? It's because he was a terrific sailor. He was very courageous. He was very lucky. We would say by the seat of his pants, he read the tides and the clouds and the winds and used his skills for sailing that way 
nobody knew about the existence of the Pacific Ocean at that point, or it was only hinted at. He thought it was either non-existent or very small. So his idea of the world was smaller and simpler than we later found out that it was. But he gave us our first clues. Were there people who had sailed from Europe to the Americas at some point before then? Yeah, there might have been. There are clues and hints and records that perhaps there were people from Northern Europe or even Scandinavia or some others who had reached Europe before, but they didn't leave any records. So that's a very important thing. Columbus recorded a lot about his voyage. It was very well documented. It was very well documented by him, by Spain, by others who went along with him. His son, Fernando, wrote and authorized a biography of him, and he sailed with Columbus on the fourth voyage when he was a young man. So we have a lot of this firsthand or eyewitness testimony about Columbus. This doesn't mean that people still don't come up with various controversies about him and who he was and where he came from. As I was researching this book, I read accounts about the fact that Columbus's origins were actually Portuguese. Well, he may have had some Portuguese connection or Polish or some other country or area, but not Genoa. Many people feel he was a converso, a Jew who had converted and sailed because the Inquisition started about the time of his sailing. That's not really the case, although there may have been some conversos in his crew, including one of his navigators. But as far as we know about Columbus and his family, they were all devout Catholics, Christians. And he later on developed kind of a messianic complex that God wanted him to do this, to make these four voyages to bring people who had not previously been Christian into the fold. That's why he was doing it. Well, there were some also some mixed motives. Often he heard or occasion heard the voice of God speaking to him, and you would say, well, that means, oh, he must have really been crazy, psychotic, or something like that. However, that was not unusual in his time. Many people heard God speaking to them in various ways. So, as I said, he was really representative of his time, although he was very courageous, but he also showed many of the shortfalls or limitations of his era. Also, there were unintentional consequences of his voyage that started during it, but that became even more pronounced afterwards and continued to this day. Alfred Crosby, who was an academic in 1972, identified this as the Columbian Exchange. That means a transfer in both directions between two continents, and that included all sorts of livestock, tomatoes, and maize. They all went from the Americas to Europe. Before Columbus, there was no tomato sauce in Italian cooking because there were no tomatoes in Italy. There was no chocolate in Switzerland because chocolate had come from the New World to the Old. And it also went the other way. Horses, donkeys, pigs, cattle, cats, and dogs, they spread from the Old World to the New, and they transformed the economy there and the society. So the Colombian exchange was subtle, sometimes invisible, but very powerful. There were also some very deadly side effects. Bubonic plague and chickenpox and measles and yellow fever came with Columbus, and they decimated the indigenous peoples, the Taino and others, the Arawaks, who had not developed defenses against them. Tobacco was one of those commodities that 
transform the economy. Columbus observed some of the people in the new world, what we now call the new world, smoking and some sort of tobacco. And he brought some of that back to Europe. That started what became a very important trade and with a, with a lot of pernicious effects as well because the health hazards of tobacco, which were not recognized at that time. He would have been astounded to realize all the things that his four voyages set off. He also would have been astounded to realize that he was considered in some way a genocidal figure or monster. But he might have said, you know, there was a little bit of truth to that or some point to it because his voyages unintentionally decimated the peoples of the New World. It wasn't just the infectious diseases that he brought against which they had no defense. It was partly in their thinking when they saw his ships coming and his men that it was the fulfillment of a prophecy of doom, of the end of their tribes, of their lives. When some of the men were beginning to cohabitate with the women, they saw that as also the end. And their reaction was not so much to be aggressive, but to be suicidal. And many jumped off cliffs to their deaths thousands. Columbus was aware of some of this, and he was mystified and baffled. He felt this had some reaction or response to his arrival, but it was very, very jarring to him. It's amazing, his story, and how he still is clearly one of the most important explorers in history. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how he became an explorer and how he became educated in navigation and sailing? And also, how did he actually secure that commission from the king and queen of Spain to find that western route to Asia? He started out as what we would call a merchant marine, a merchant seaman, in and around Genoa, sailing across the Mediterranean and back. He became very accomplished and skillful. However, there were rumors that it might be possible to sail across the Atlantic to China, India, Asia, whatever you want to call it and that there would be untold riches there. So that's what inspired him. Others might have tried. We don't really know too much about it because they perished. The main or most advanced government that was doing it was Portugal, and Columbus was there trying, along with others, to get a commission for years, and it didn't work. Joao was rather secretive and perhaps even paranoid just strung him along. So finally, he went to King Charles, and Charles I of Spain, later emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, seeking a commission. He was a foreigner, and therefore a figure of some suspicion, but he got the backing from Charles to do it, and therefore it was, in some ways, a Spanish mission. But it was really Spanish, Genoese, kind of a blend. The three ships that we all know about were tiny by our standards. They were caravels, which were a kind of hybrid design of Arab and European ships. And if you boarded one, we would say, how is it possible to sail across the Atlantic with his storms and survive? But Columbus was a wonderful, intuitive sailor and made this crossing the first time in, in 33 days. His later crossings were equally efficient. So getting there actually was the easy part. It's what happened afterwards that became so difficult. He kind of gave his life to this endeavor. At the end of the fourth voyage, he was broken in health. He was kind of out of his mind. 
and returned to Europe basically to die. He was almost half dead on the second part of the voyage anyway. As I said, he was driven by this kind of messianic fervor, and he never really knew where things were, though. That was the terrible irony and also some of the ill effects that he set off, but he didn't realize what he was doing or where he was going or where this would lead. But that's actually discovery in a way. I remember once going to a conference at NASA for a Mars mission, and one of the scientists who was in charge of the exploration part of it was asked by the press, what do you plan to discover on this mission? And she said, well, if we knew what we were going to find, it wouldn't be a discovery. Columbus once wrote, I saw several things that were indications of land. A large flock of seabirds flew overhead. How did he actually go about recording his explorations on those four voyages? And his first voyage was a successful journey into the unknown. How did his recordings change over the course of the other three voyages? He kept logs, and so did others on the voyage, whether he wrote them in real time as it was happening or that night or in recollection a week or even years later. It's not really clear, but they generally are accurate because they agree with other accounts about when things happened and what the events were. And the more he wrote, the more articulate he became. Of course, it was sort of special pleading for his own success or his fears or his own idea of what being a hero meant. So he wanted to leave a record. He was very conscious of that, of what he had done so that he would be remembered. And his son, Fernando, took up that cause and also wrote a lot about his father and preserved, became a bibliophile, had amassed a rather large library. So he also preserved the Columbus reputation. However, the whole idea of long-distance exploration across the Atlantic languished for years until Magellan came along, which was almost 60 years later. Nobody else attempted anything like that. And Magellan, of course, went much, much further than Columbus, ultimately met with a tragic end, but demonstrated a lot of things which Columbus didn't even guess at. The fact that the Pacific was huge, that water covered two-thirds of the Earth's surface, more or less how big the Earth was, that it was beyond question round. The sailors knew this, and many people knew this all along. It was not really a surprise. All you had to do was stand on the shore and watch a ship slip below the horizon as it sailed away, and you realized it was round. So, And, of course, the Greeks and Romans realized the same thing. So the idea of a flat Earth was overplayed, and Columbus was certainly not a flat Earther. But he perceptions about the cosmos and about Earth at that point. But we learned from his mistakes. Of course, the most controversial part of Columbus's legacy remains his relationship with the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean. And you touched on this earlier, but could you talk a little more about the seeming tropical paradise he found in 1492 and his relationship and interactions with the various tribes he encountered, including the enslavement, massacre, and the disease that fell upon the Tienos? Yes. Let me just say, he did not set out on a mission to slaughter indigenous peoples, the Taino, the Arawaks, and others. He set out to go and to trade with people he called Indians after India in China. 
when he encountered these indigenous people, at first he admired them. They seemed very capable, elegant, and capable mariners. Later on, slavery was common in Italy in his time, in, in Genoa. You can see from his records, he began thinking, oh, some of them might make good slaves. That was not part of his mission to go and find slaves, but it occurred to him. So he wound up having mixed motives, partly to convert them, if he could, to Christianity, and partly to exploit them. And yes, it was all confused, but that was a confusion that he reflected I don't know, the Western European psyche at that point. He was, as I said, not an aberration. He kind of was characteristic of all that. And it was just a different era. It's hard to judge explorers of that era, our standards, because we miss a lot. And that's not to excuse them at all. But if you wonder what they were thinking, you really have to read their own accounts to understand what they were thinking. And it's different from the way we think. Finally, even though Columbus never set foot in North America, as you mentioned, he was celebrated in a famous early 19th century biography by Washington Irving, in poems yes. by Walt Whitman. And in 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt made Columbus Day a national holiday. How should the public, teachers and students alike, use the knowledge of history, warts and all, to better understand Columbus and his complex legacy? Well, I think he's particularly complex because he's many faceted and it's hard to come down with a simple judgment on him. I think the understanding of Columbus and its evolution over the centuries and even in the past 50 years is really a dramatic case study of how we view them. When, when I was a kid in school, Columbus was seen as a heroic figure and there was Columbus Day and it was a holiday and great. But it's a relatively recent phenomenon. FDR instituted made Columbus Day a federal holiday in 1937, partly to appeal to one of his constituencies. That was Italian-Americans. So there was a political angle to it. There had been parades in honor of Columbus for decades prior to that. So in a sense, he was just making this official. But that was part of it. Also, he wanted to give a sense of inclusiveness now, in some ways, it boomeranged or backfired because as time went on, there was, a, and we are more understanding of what the consequences of Columbus's voyages were, it backfired. And we see that the legacy was very troubling and, if not absolutely scary, because of his treatment of indigenous peoples. Although some of it, or a lot of it, was not intentional, perhaps some of it was. And his biographers, you mentioned Samuel Elliott Morrison, who was perhaps his first modern biographer. Morrison was a legendary historian and biographer at Harvard, and his biography, which was written, keep in mind, during World War II, during a patriotic era, tended to emphasize the positive part of Columbus. He acknowledged it because Morrison was very smart. This was a very, very thorough biography. He acknowledged some of Columbus's shortcomings, but kind of glossed over them. And also the technology that was available to him. We didn't quite get that full a picture of what Columbus did or where he went. 
now there's a lot more documents that are available. There's a lot more ways to get out the truth of what happened to Columbus and data from satellites and remote sensing and things like that. So we have a much more accurate or scientific understanding of Columbus and his shortcomings. So Morrison was certainly the state of the art of his time, but we've slowly moved on. I tried to give a sense of this varied kaleidoscopic view of Columbus and he's not the only historical figure um, who's undergone a reevaluation. There are certainly others throughout history. Uh, lots of legends have sprung up about them. Columbus is only one of many. And people project a lot of things onto them which aren't necessarily relevant to what was going on at the time or to see him in their own image or in one way or another. He's a fascinating case history, but we're lucky because we have so many primary documents about it. So we can see Columbus in his own words from the records of other people. The Spanish kept very detailed records about his voyages. There's a lot of things that we can put together to get a modern view of what Columbus was like. And, you know, what emerges often is how misguided or deluded he was in terms of thinking about where he was or where he was going. It's kind of extraordinary. Imagine if you driving across the United States and you reached Kansas City and you said, okay, now we're in LA. We've come to the end of our voyage. Um, that, to give a rough idea of how confused Columbus was. And yet, he was doing a better job than anybody else at that time. That's remarkable. And that's a great analogy. Is there a brief paragraph from your Columbus oh. biography you'd like to read to close okay. out the interview? Sure. This is from my book, sort of a general description of, about Columbus. It's just a couple of paragraphs. To the end of his days, Columbus remained convinced that he sailed for and eventually arrived at the outskirts of Asia. His unshakable Asian delusion motivated his entire subsequent career in exploration. No comparable figure in the age of discovery was so mistaken as to his whereabouts. Had Columbus been the one to name his discovery, he might have called it Asia rather than America. Obsessed with his God-given task of finding Asia, Columbus undertook four voyages within the span of a decade, each very different, each designed to demonstrate that he could sail to China or Asia within a matter of weeks and convert those he found there to Christianity. But as the voyages grew in complexity and sophistication, and as Columbus failed to reconcile his often violent experiences as a captain and provincial governor with the demands of his faith, he became progressively less rational and more extreme until it seemed as if he lived in his glorious illusions uh, rather than in the grueling reality his voyages laid bare. If the first voyage illustrates the reward of exploration, the subsequent three voyages illustrate the costs, political, moral, and economic. Thank you for joining us. This has been an interesting and engaging discussion that we hope has been helpful as people are trying to make sense of these public controversies and learn more about Christopher Columbus and our shared history. Please tune in to our regular podcast of The Learning Curve on Wednesday with Kara and Gerard.